This episode of Dopey is brought to you by our friends at Aloe Recovery. Located in sunny Southern California in Malibu and Silver Lake, Aloe was created by our friend Bob Forrest and his friends Evan, Jared, and Bob as a place for addicts to be treated with compassion and connection rather than control. They have decades and decades of treating addiction as well as co-occurring mental health disorders, including SMI. They make sure that if you detox at Aloe, that your detox is as comfortable as possible, which is key if you're kicking alcohol or benzos, heroin, or even cocaine. You want it. You want a nice detox off Coke, even if the withdrawal isn't that heavy physically. They also have amenities you wouldn't believe. They have the incredibly spiritual sweat lodge. They have the sound bath meditation. They have equine therapy. And I hear if the weather is right, they do surfing. If you're fucked and you're willing to go to sunny Southern California to get help, I strongly suggest going to Aloe. This dopey episode is also brought to you by our friends at CASL, which stands for Clean and Sober Love, the dating app for people who choose a sober and clean way of life. It was created by one addict to help another addict to date safely. And here is the deal. You got clean, you got sober, you got a new life. Now you're ready to date. So where are you supposed to look? Down under the Manhattan Bridge overpass? CASL is the solution. Dating and recovery is real and worth considering if you have your shit together. CASL is the platform where you can meet like-minded junkies and crackheads all over the world. You wouldn't believe how beautiful and brilliant the sober junkies and crackheads at CASL are right now. Install the app on your phone from the App Store or the Google Play Store. It is totally free. They have incredible video chat features, and the more people that join, the more people that are in there, the more people to choose from. This episode of Dopey is also brought to you by our friends at Grady's Cold Brew Coffee. Grady's Cold Brew is a beautiful coffee company founded in 2011. They are independently owned and operated. They are based out of the Bronx at Hunts Point, and Grady is a real person. Grady's Cold Brew Coffee is so delicious, so strong and sweet with a hint of chicory greatness. If you like cold brew coffee, I totally suggest getting Grady's. If you order right now, you use the dopey code of dopey25 and you save 25% on cold brew. If you know anything about cold brew, you know it's expensive. So if you order with the dopey code, you will be saving money. This coffee is great 
You can drink Grady's Black like I do, or you can use whole milk, skim milk, oat milk, or yes, even goat milk makes Grady's Cold Brew Coffee even greater. Go to Grady'sColdBrew.com, enter the dopey code DOPEY25, and save 25% on some of the best cold brew coffee I've ever drinking. And of course, this episode of Dopey is brought to you by listeners like you in the Dopey Nation through the power, passion, and pathos of the Dopey Patreon account. It is www.patreon.com slash dopeypodcast. And if you didn't know, you should know this. Tomorrow night, that is Saturday, October 24th, for all patrons pledging $5 or more a month, we are doing the first ever live Dopey Patreon game night. It is called The Stash Word. There will be prizes. It will be super fun. I will be there. Ray will be there. A lot of the Dopey Nation will be there. You should be there. Join the Dopey Patreon. Pledge $5 or more, and you get invited to a Zoom every month. Last week, we had the great Emily Sullivan uh, on the Dopey Patreon show. The week before, we had AJ Delario. The week before, we had my dad. The week before, we have Liz Ann. Dopey Patreon is the gift that keeps on giving. Give five bucks, go to the Zoom. Give ten bucks, go to the Zoom. Next week, the bonus episode comes out for the $10 uh, level, and you'll get your stickers. Dopey Patreon Zoom. It's better than Dopey. It's more Dopey. All right. Also, we have the crazy Halloween Dopey gear available at the Dopey Podcast store at dopeypodcast.com. Stuff is looking pretty fucking good over there. It is our partner, SRO Prince, that are putting it out. A couple of junkies in recovery, just like you and me. And um, that Dopey Skull hoodie, first ever crew neck, long sleeve. There's really, really nice stuff on there. Check it out. It's getting cold. Also, I still have dopey ski hats in my garage. I also have dopey snapbacks, and I have a few Oyve snapbacks, although people at my 12-step meeting seem to be snapping up the Oyve snapback. So get them while you can. Just Venmo me, and I, of course, have a ton of dopey stickers as well. Enough with the ads. Here is the show. Here's the show. Welcome to Dopey, the podcast about drugs, addiction, and dumb shit. And I'm Dave. And on the phone, I bet you thought she'd never be back. She's known as a lot of things, but around here she's known as the Dopey Drez. Amy Dresner, welcome Woo! back. How you feel? What's up? I'm good, man. Happy to be here. Happy to fucking be with the DN, man. Back, back in the saddle again. Yeah, absolutely. So Amy has a new podcast but it's not that new anymore how many how many months you've been doing this thing amy four and a half months four and a half months of hell for me resenting amy's <laughs> podcast the rehab confidential which she started with dopey regular joe shrank so dopey regular oh my god he's dopey a regular he's been on like once or twice three he times he has a dope how, okay yeah oh i also I mean, can't you watch two different TV shows? Do you watch one show only? One show only. I only. No, stop. No, listen. Um, Amy and Joe, two dopey regulars, and also, you know, Amy obviously wrote the incredible 
addiction memoir, My Fair Junkie. And Joe is a expert on all things addiction, correct? Correct. And he started the fix, and but he was fired from it. And then I was writing for it. And he's Laurie Dew's ex. And she introduced us and was like, you guys should do something together. And so we did. Amazing. And more and, and also very relevant to Dopey, Joe came on because he was Chris's old boss. Joe ran a so gnarly, right? So many. It's so incestuous, the whole scene. <laughs> well, it's nice. Nobody's hooking up. I mean, you're not hooking up with Joe, are you? No. All right, so it's not Even that though incestuous. People are like, "Why do you have naked, like shirtless pictures of him?" I'm like, "Because he sent them to me when we did the separated birth with Jim Hopper." Listen, just put it like this: I, if there is no romantic vibes with you and Joe, that's fine. But if one day you crazy kids decided to get together, that would be okay too. I don't see anybody. I haven't seen Joe. That's why we do it on Zoom because I'm afraid that he's a super spreader. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. If I he, know. I'm totally neurotic. Well, he's like 6'5 and so starka. Like, he not, he's like impenetrable in every way. So, like, nothing. He doesn't get sick. He doesn't give a shit about anything. He has, like, no joy, no feelings. He's dead inside. You know, nothing bothers him. I call him up. I'm like, ah, I'm upset about this. He's like, who cares? I was like, okay. Well, I he, mean, I would love, I mean, both of us need a little bit of that, like, ah, oh, who gives a fuck? No, I would, yeah, I used to shoot Who Gives a Fuck, and I called it heroin. That was my thing. <laughs> right? I know. I had to do drugs to get to that feeling, too, like of like not caring. But he's like there naturally. He's like, oh, fuck them, whatever. Who cares? So ha- like, what? T- tell us about the podcast, though. Tell the Dopey Nation we never did. See, I was resentful against the podcast. Oh, really? I couldn't tell. I, I was, couldn't tell. I was I resentful know. because I felt... Like, nobody told me. I, I didn't see it until the world saw it on Instagram. And I was like, why don't, you know, they should tell me this stuff. But then, you know, after many months and a lot of talking with my sponsor, a lot of praying, a lot of sleepless <laughs> nights, I realized that I don't have any ownership over you and Joe. And I, I'm just grandiose to think that you have to come to me. Would she give you a heads up? Or she give, we should give Bob Forrest a, a heads up? He doesn't give a shit. He's never called me and go, like, oh, I can't believe you started your own plug. No one has. Only I did. I did that. <laughs> I call, Everyone I, has a podcast, Dave. Everybody. Amy, I'm, I'm apologizing. I'm, oh. I'm apologizing. I'm apologizing. Yeah, I knew you were you were pissy. You were pissy about it. You had many, many years to make me your co-host and did not. And so uh, a couple people wanted me to be start a, a thing with them. And I'm lazy. And I was like, God, it seems like a lot of work. I'm like, and then Joe was just like, let's do this. Like, uh, it's my it's my fucking New Year's resolution to start a podcast. Let's roll. And I was just like, okay. Well, there you go, and and so, and, and I and started, I you know? and, and I only wish good things. It was my own stupidity and grandiosity that caused me to have the resentment. Now I'm only a cheering section. I'm going to get my first tattoo is going to be a rehab confidential tattoo. I hope you will. He's yeah. going to get. I think Joe's going to get one. All right, I'm going to. I'm going to. Yeah, you should get one too. He has a dopey tattoo he has a major dopey tattoo i know major i know god bless I wanted him. to get a rehab confidential i know he doesn't care he doesn't <laughs> care she's just like Amy, <laughs> okay do, do you have tattoos no i used to have my ex-husband's name tattooed on my ring finger and i had it lasered off it took two years so you're gonna get the rehab confidential uh logo i'm not getting a rehab confidential tattoo i'm not getting any tattoos but my ex-husband has a tattoo of me licking a gun on his arm 
Wow, so, you licking a gun on his arm. That's commitment. Yeah, this was years ago and when I was doing stand-up, and it's fucking huge. And I, according, and I, I, I've heard it's still there. I don't think you can do a cover-up. It's really big. It's a really beautiful, amazing tattoo, but I'm sure he wakes up every morning and it's like, oh, that cunt, you know. That's so funny. Do you think he really wakes up in the morning and says, oh, that cunt? Yeah. That's like the gift. That, <laughs> that's the gift that keeps on giving, right? Yeah. That's amazing. So, um, yeah. so COVID has, has kept you insane at home, basically. Yeah. I mean, I'm better now, but, um, you know, it really... Well, I'm in, you know, I'm in West Hollywood. It's like hardcore Handmaid's Tale shit. You know what I mean? Like, you got to wear a mask everybody, everywhere. Like, you know, I don't know. I, I just, I don't have the best immune system thanks to all the drugs I did. I'm fucking skinny and I'm fucking old. And I'm like, I don't, I just don't want to get it, man. I'm nervous. And uh, so I haven't really been seeing anyone. I started to get very, very depressed. And I was like, okay. And, uh, so then I was like, I got to fucking mix it up. And so I started a, uh, a podcast and what, and that, that didn't really, but that, that helped. And I started meditating. I started meditating. Right. The, the transcendental meditation. I've, yeah, I've, that changed my shit. That changed my, that's a fucking game changer. That changed my life. And I quit vaping. You did. Also. You're done with the vaping. Yeah. yeah you yeah. were fucked yeah. up on the vape. Um, oh, it was really bad. I, I like, you know, I, I got COVID, as you know, in early, early yeah. spring, like just when it happened. And I, I haven't been really uh, locked down at all. Like our town is like, our town is basically open for business. I go to an in-person 12-step meeting every other day. My daughter's in school full time. But I still was getting crazy. And I think I was getting crazy because I wasn't going to work. I was working from home. I think it was a a lot of like family and stuff. And I found the thing that saved me was, you know, program and like a spiritual program. And it sounds like that's what did it for you in the end when you turned to TM, right? Well, that and I also started um, running a uh, meeting for Laura McCallan for her TLC group on Fridays. Um, so it's not AA, but it's like a sobriety support meeting. So I started running a meeting for her. And then I also started to just like, like I went to like a vintage thing with a friend and like, I mean, I was so excited to be outside and like talking to people. Like I just jumped around and like hugged her. I was so happy. And I just, I don't think we realize how important social connection is for us. Like isolation lowers your dopamine. That's why there's been so much fucking relapse and so much depression and suicide on top of like the whole money shit. Like everyone's broke and on fucking unemployment and it's just been really gnarly you know what i mean and it's like a really hot political climate and people are being dicks and it's like you know it's just a very fucked up time my roommate was here for about four months and he was cooking for me and we were shopping together and it was like i was okay and we were watching tv and i was like doing fine and then he went back to new york and that's when i really took a dive right because it was like holy shit then it was just me yeah me and colonel puff puff and i was like oh fuck okay you and the cat, fucking isolation. And, and yeah. so, but these things, do you find that, you know, the podcast with Joe, this, this meeting, the TM, do you think it's, it's been like enough to like get your mind on like back hinged, you know, not too crazy, not Yeah, too- totally, totally. And I, um, I started relationship coaching. Um, what is that? Not coaching. 
not coaching other people, obviously, <laughs> but um, doing really like I'm being coached in, you know, I'm seeing a relationship coach. What is that about? Explain that. Um, it's, I'm stupid. I, I mean, I, I, sh- you know, I don't know anything about that. So explain to me what so relationship coaching is. So it's basically, um, me looking at my patterns, me looking at my, uh, I cry a lot. It's a vlog. She has bits of it on her thing. Um, Deflin Lammers, I think her name is. Um, Deflin Lammers. That sounds like a fake name. Deflin Lammers. No. I never Deflin heard a more Lammers. fake name than that. Dufflin? No, she's a Dufflin, D-U-F-F-L-Y-N. Yeah. Also, very not real name sounding name. I'm it's a fucking. <laughs> it sounds like Irish to me. <laughs> um, so anyway, she. Um, I cry a lot. It's video. I'm like, okay, good. Um, we talk about you know why I pick emotionally unavailable people. We talk about my childhood stuff. We talk about my mom. We talk about. Uh, attachment styles. We talk about, um, she's the one who got me actually meditating. Okay. That was part of the coaching. It was like to sort of get in touch with yourself and blah, blah. And like, you know, seeing what your triggers are and, you know, just getting really clear. So I don't know. I just figured like, you know, I mean, when I saw the gynecologist, she was like, you know, are you sexually active? I'm like, who is? You know what I mean? You can't even hug anyone. Like, you know, I mean, I guess people are fucking, but I was like, no, I'm not sexually active. And so I figured like, if I was going to be, take this time and be like reclusive, then I might as well do some work on myself. Definitely. So it's like, it's like therapy revolving around relationships. Correct. Yes. And And I remember though, in the past, you and me, like we talked about it on the show and off the show. Just like you, you had an issue around sex addiction, and you were taking yeah, I, a break. I totally from- still have that sex and love addiction. I'm still all fucked up. It's like love addiction now, but now I'm like sexually anorexic. Like it's been three years since I've had sex with anybody. I'm like shut down and scared to be hurt and like all that shit. Right, and just like wildly magnetized to people who are emotionally unavailable. Like anyone who's like totally emotionally unavailable, I'm like, I love you. Right, it's right. terrible. Because so you I know it's not because the instinct is that you know it won't work. So you, you I don't I'm not even conscious of that. So you're not stupid at all. She said you're really afraid of intimacy, which is why you're picking those people because there's no chance of intimacy. It's you that's the avoidant. And I was like, No way, I want a relationship. And she's like, uh uh-uh. uh. No, I think you she's wouldn't right. pick those people. I know. It's How much- a really hard truth to swallow, man. I think maybe I could be a relationship coach. How much does she charge? <laughs> That is between us. I will do half the price. God, of course, a Jew, you're like, half, let's talk money. Half the price. I'm with it. I can do it. <laughs> um, no, I think um, I think it's great. I think working on yourself is great. I think, uh, and I, also, I, I also yeah. just believe. And I'm kicking around the second book. I mean, I just, I have to. Your time will and come. We're shop- and we're shopping the pilot. Listen, the My Fair Junkie pilot will come out. You will rise like a phoenix from the ashes. Oh, God. A, a, I man, hope so. a man will come and sweep you off your vagina, and all, uh. all will be well. <laughs> um, I have faith, Amy, and, uh, and I think it's been too long since you've been on the old Dopey show, but I, it was my fault. It was my own resentment and jealousy and fear. And, it's um, all good. And I apologize. I publicly it's apologize. It's okay. I, I completely accept. All right, good. Um, moving on. 
we have, this is going to be an incredibly, like I didn't plan on this being a super Jewish writer episode of Dopey. <laughs> like I, that was not my plan. My plan was like, there was this dude who, you know, he writes for New York Newsday and he lives on Long Island. And my mother-in-law is always reading Newsday and sending me clippings. And he was writing about Zoom meetings and she uh, she sent me his clippings, and she's like, "You should try to get this guy on your show." And oh, I, was I like, love it. And I was like, "All right." So I did. But um, you know, anti Semites in the Dopey Nation, look out! This is a very Jewish <laughs> Jewish Dopey episode. And um, if you have a problem with too many jo- Jews, uh, write me an email at dopeypodcast at gmail dot com <laughs> at gmail dot com. And um, fucking, this is we're gonna play the Lane Filler interview, and then we'll come back. Okay. Awesome. Yeah, let's do it. This is Lane Filler of New York Newsday. As many of the Dopey Nation know, I have a very involved mother-in-law. And my mother-in-law constantly cuts articles out of Newsday, out of any place, and she sends them over to me and my wife. And I went over to bring coffee to her husband, and she said, Oh, my God, you have to hear about this Lane Filler. (laughs) He's going to Zoom meetings. He's in... He's in recovery. He's writing about it. You need to meet him. So I read this article about Lane Filler, and I called him up, and uh, and here he is. Welcome to the show. <laughs> Thank you. Here I am. Yeah, you know, it's funny because I wrote about addiction and what was going on with meetings in, like, day nine of COVID. And I think we thought, like, it wasn't going to be this kind of thing. So I actually went back to South Carolina. When, when COVID hit, I had to take my daughter home from Brandeis. My wife lives in a house in South Carolina that we were never able to sell when I moved up here, and then we didn't want to sell. And I literally took a gym bag. I was like, I'm going to take my daughter to South Carolina. I've got a gym bag. I'll take one shirt. And, and like four months later, I'm still there doing laundry twice a day. So, yeah. that's. Uh, but my point being, there was a point to that, Lane. I, my sense of how meetings were going and how people were still working together and how recovery was working was probably very different nine days into it than what I would write now. So what was going on then for you in recovery and what's going on now? So then for us, we had very quickly, I go to a group that's been around forever. They had very quickly come up with Zoom meetings. There was novelty to it. People were excited about doing it, even if they were in different geographic locations. And then a couple of things happened. Uh, some of it started to drop off. You get busy if you're physically home with your family all the time. So like for me, I found, and I found this before, I tend to be a workaholic. So if I'm physically with my family and I work, work, work all day and all night, and then it comes time to 7 o'clock and I'm going to take a break, it's very hard for me to be like, Okay, I know I've ignored you in every way, shape, and form all day, but and now I have to go to a meeting. I'm yeah. going to ignore you for a different reason. Yeah. So it's totally different. Yes. And so that, but this, no. but this time when I ignore you, it's going to be for you. For, actually. It's for God, yes. and it's for you and for God. It's <laughs> right. not for me. The other thing that happened is something that was very positive for my group, but, but not great for me, and not great maybe for for the idea of sobriety, which is that a big group of my friends in the summer said, "Why don't we meet in Dan's backyard?" And we'll smoke cigars, or we'll have one meeting that's not smoking cigars every week, but actually they all are. And we'll sit very separated and talk about our stuff. And so that became, without meaning to, either a men's meeting or a men plus the tomboys meeting. But it also, and there's nothing you can do about this. This is absolutely nobody's fault, but there's no way a newcomer could find it. And that, I think to me, if there's a story about addiction and treatment or or, or recovery in COVID now, 
It's that I don't know how the hell someone who's trying to get sober for the first day would get connected in the way that you and I did. That's interesting. The newcomer is an interesting point because I don't, you know, and I don't consider the newcomer nearly enough. Like, uh, I know that was supposed to be the mantra. I don't Mm. consider the newcomer. Like, I'm like, I don't. And I go to a meeting that has never stopped and it's, it's grown exponentially. Like Mm. before COVID, it was like 10 people and now it's like 70 people. No. Yeah. I, I, I get that. I think that's true that it depends on the group. I happen to go to a group that has thousands of years of sobriety and it meets in a basement and it's welcoming to newcomers, but it's not out there seeking them. Very self-sufficient, very, not insular, but that kind of a, a group and, I think it's great if, if yours your group is doing better to attract new people. I don't know how ours would because we're in a guy's backyard. Well, I think the way that we attract <laughs> the people, and it's not we. It's I mean, mm. I guess I'm, I haven't put the we into this meeting. It's definitely right. them in my mind. But it is we. Mm. And I think we attract the people because we're in the listing. And right. is your friend's backyard in the listing? No. And actually, that meeting is, is kind of ending right now. We're moving from the church we've been at forever to a new church. But we are going back this week. We went back indoors and went back to a scheduled meeting that's on a schedule somewhere. Uh, so, actually, I guess that's very positive news. We're back at King of Kings, and uh, it's either Huntington Station or, or Melville, or I don't know. The craziest thing about my meeting is that it only—it's supposed to only meet outside from March till. October or something, mm. and it's grown, you know, like ten times. Oh, what you it go was. one of those beachy meetings? Yeah. Oh, just down the down like the road. Opener, like seven in the morning or eight o'clock eight on o'clock. Quarry Beach. I think I know people that go to that. I think Kevin, who just texted me, goes to that. Big Kevin, Irish Kevin. Everyone there's Irish. Big <laughs> <laughs> Irish and named yeah, Kevin. You yeah, idiot. Yeah, everybody Shut there. The fuck up. Everybody there is big Irish and named Kevin. Oh, um, the nicknames, man. <laughs> I met family. my first Jew at that meeting yesterday. First Jew besides me at that meeting. The first Jew at that meeting ever? I was the first Jew okay. at that meeting, and that was the <laughs> second. <laughs> well, in, in this town. I guess. Yeah, the, I could never. So being from mostly from South Carolina, even though my family is northern in roots, and I, I was born in Jersey, it's very hard for me to get used to the idea that there's still so much like concentration on different, different ethnicities clustering. In South Carolina, for the most part, I mean, Jewish is different, and I was Jewish, but other than that, it's black and white. Right. And people aren't like, oh, yeah, the, the, the Irish live over there, and the Italians live over there, because everyone's has been there for hundreds of years. It's changing, and the reason it's changing is because now everyone you meet in the South is from the North. But, but when I was growing up, it was just white people, black people, and then, and then y'all don't believe in Jesus? Like, right. What are you all even doing? You're ruining everything. We can't even figure out who's on whose team. That's, that's amazing and funny. And I, I mean, like, I think that there's a lot. I, I, had, I, I just got my first in-person sponsee, to be honest with you. Really? And, uh, and I'm meeting with him every week, and we're reading the book, and, and we're in, uh, still in the very beginning. We're in Bill's story, and we're talking higher power stuff, and I'm trying to explain... You know, my background, my dad uh, was this hardcore Orthodox Jew as a kid, Mm -hmm. and then he got interested in science, and the rabbi was like, those two things don't jibe, so he became an Orthodox atheist, and I'm trying to explain this to my sponsee, who's a 62-year-old Catholic altar boy, (laughs) but it's beautiful because I think this is the crux of of recovery, you know, how you figure out your higher power and where does it sit. And there's a lot of Jesus talk at the meeting, which would have thrown me years ago, but it doesn't throw me now. 
it, you know, it, it would have thrown me years ago, too. I, I say that, but I actually got sober in places where there was a fair amount of Jesus. I actually got sober in Wilkes-Barre, Pennsylvania. But I'll say this. Uh, it, whether it's Catholics or Jews or whoever, it, it can take a while to realize it. But I think the fact that the spirituality in AA never intersects with money really helps. You right. know, because no matter what crazy shit you're saying... You're not asking for me to pay for it. It's not your living. It's not so disingenuous. So I guess I can hear it. I don't know. I, I, it's like to hell. I mean, like that's one of the things I wanted to talk to you about. Like it's something I never talk about on the show is kind of like program. You know, like I was very resistant to program because I felt like it was very culty and it scared me. And the idea of uh, being in a cult, of, being, yeah. of belonging to anything that wasn't a bunch of... It's funny because somebody was talking about how you know, 12-step groups are mostly freaks and bums. Mm. And I was like, if I had known that, I would have gone right away. I just figured right. it was I church. They were all upstanding people. Yeah, yeah I don't know. No, so it's interesting. When I got sober, and it sounds to me like you may share this. So I grew up in one of those homes that was hyper-intellectualized in such a way that you went to temple... And, and, and you had a bar mitzvah, but if you had told your parents that you had a personal relationship with God, they'd have put you away. Or, 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 thought, that, or thought you were an idiot. They would have looked at you like you, were, you had the, the understandment level, the attainment level of a cat or a dog. What do you mean, like, you believe and listen? And My father had to endure me as an IV heroin addict for 15 mm-hmm. years, where I was not you know, accountable for nothing, right. taking money, ruining everything, ruining my own family, walking, mm. basically losing my family. And yet when I got sober and say it was because of God, he was like, <laughs> what the fuck is wrong with you? So, yeah, right. <laughs> like, and, and, and my, listen, I'm so confused about God that I no longer think about it very much at all. I do a little, but I'm not confused about prayer. And that's, for some reason, that just became something I could understand. And I'll tell you, my first real sponsor, it was weird. He was like, you've got to pray, and, and, and you've got to hit your knees. And, and I was like, he said it, and I was like, okay, I can accept pray. I don't get it, but I can accept that you think I need to pray. But, but why do I need to hit my knees? And, and I thought he was going to explain something. He was Catholic, super Catholic. And I thought he was going to explain something about God or kneeling or knees or your eyes or something like that. And he looked at me and he said, because you need some humility, you arrogant prick. And I was like, oh, yeah. <laughs> okay. All right. I'm with you on that. I probably do. That sounds like me. I have always had a certain amount of self-awareness. For some, my, my, most of my flaws have always been very visible to me. And I've just been like watching a movie where I act like an asshole. Um, and oh, but, but I did find that, but when we're talking about like the way we were raised and anti-spirituality. So over a period of time, one thing that happened for me very quickly is when I got sober, my career was a disaster. I had not been fired from the job I took, but I'd literally been demoted three times. I was a sports columnist, which is a nice job, and I had been demoted to like features writer and then night cops, and the next thing was going to be like obit clerk, okay? And... Things started to get better for me very quickly when I got sober. And so I got sober in September. My group actually celebrates anniversaries tomorrow. And by, so this is September of 2003. And in April of 2004, I'm in Baghdad covering the war for Knight Ritter and my newspaper, the, the Times Leader in Pennsylvania. That, that's how fast things got 
better for me. And I'm trying to pray, and I'm trying to accept God. I'm like walking around Baghdad, the, the green zone, looking for the AA meeting on Tuesday. And I end up rooming at one point with a couple of lieutenants, both of whom I'm embedded. And I'm with a couple of lieutenants, both of whom are born again, flat out, straight up. If you don't say God, you ain't shit. I could not pray in front of them. I could not pray in front of them. Did they pray together? They prayed together. They prayed before bed. They hit their knees. So I could not pray in front of them, even knowing it would make them think more of me rather than less. Why? Because it was so dumb to me, so anti-intellectual. So st- That's I couldn't so do it. funny. I so it was your pride. Yeah, I couldn't do it in front of my wife either It's like for my a long friend time. who couldn't pee in front of people. In the, you know. um, <laughs> yes. yes, I'm pridefully impotent. Exactly. <laughs> but so like when you got sober, you're talking about 17 years ago, so congratulations Thank also. You. That's amazing. Fucking 17 years ago, when did you start hitting your knees to pray? So, and we never do this on Dopey, by the way. This is a, a oh, whole yeah. new trailblazing <laughs> conversation about recovery. We so, never do this. So, as I said, so I get, I try to get sober because I'm in complete despair. And I literally like run into an AA meeting at a clubhouse in downtown Wilkesbury, thinking that I can then go to my boss and tell her I went to a meeting. And like under the Americans with Disabilities Act, maybe she can't fire me that day and has to give me a week to get my shit together. And I make another day and another day, and then I've got a week. And at this time, my wife is getting ready kind of to leave me. We were in Pennsylvania living in this, like, unweatherized lake house on Harvey's Lake. And um, I was just in total disrepair. And we had a uh, three-year-old daughter at the time. And um, so my wife was getting ready to go back to South Carolina. And we were just absolutely broke. We had strung out. A, we owned two homes in South Carolina that we were trying to rent out, and they weren't renting, and I was just a puddle drunk. And uh, she was, like, packing stuff. Her parents were visiting from South Carolina, and she actually sent her China home with them. Because she was like, this, yeah, this is the done. beginning. No, she, she was going. We were arranging for a moving van, and I was, like, going to find, you know, a basement to live in. And the theory was I would find a job in South Carolina and move down. But, like, nobody was nobody cared whether I found a job in South Carolina and moved down because I was done. And so I, I put together a day and a day and another day and maybe a week. And the newspaper we both worked for, which had only, my wife was incredibly well qualified as a, as a newspaper executive, had worked for, and they were only ever willing to give her a job as an ad rep. And like a week after I got sober and she's leaving, that newspaper, the Times Leader's like, what if instead of an ad rep, you basically ran the advertising department and made three times as much money as you do now. And she hasn't resigned yet. She's literally getting ready to resign like the next week. And it, it, was, it felt like God wouldn't let my marriage split up. And I'd been sober like a week. So then <laughs> we go, all right, so maybe she's got to stay. What could she do? She was making like a base of 35 and ended up like the next year she made 100. And... And so, but we can't live in this, this place anymore. And now, I don't know how much you know about Scranton and Wilkes-Barre and that area. A little bit, a yeah, little bit. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a depressed, man. If you have a couple of bucks in your pocket, you are king. Right. So we're like, oh, we need to find somewhere to live. And we find this place that's on a manicured estate. The rooms in this house have names. That's what kind of house this is. What kind of names? Uh, like Webb Hall was the, dining, no was the living okay. room. Yeah, and all these fireplaces and... 
it's on 20 manicured acres and it's $1,300 a month. Right. And we're, it's on a mountain. It's in, we're like, how could that even be? Like, so you get like a week, your wife gets like the dream job and you move the into dream the dream house. And it's you, totally like, affordable. It's insane. And I'm like, what if there is, and literally this is going through my head. I'm like, what if there is a God and I just piss on this? Like, he will punch me in the face every day he lets me to live for the rest of my life. And I had like, I had asked a guy to be my sponsor very quickly. And he said no because he had too many. Too and many like, sponsees. Too many sponsees. That should ben- be like a, a little kid's book. Yeah, too, too many, many sponsees. sponsees. Well, the guy, one of his sponsees that week or like the second week went to jail. Amazing. And Ben was like, yeah, he was like, you know, I actually do have a minute. And he was one of those real old school downtown Wilkesbury. He was like three and a half feet tall and tough as nails. He was a commercial roofer who was retired. He only had one lung, and he was, he was brutal. I mean, he, he loved you, and he'd hug you, but he would say things. I would come into a meeting in this clubhouse late because I was coming from work and trying to run over there at 10.30 in the morning, and I'd be like, you know, it'd be my turn to share. And I'd be like, man, I'm really sorry I'm late. And he'd be like, we were fine without you. <laughs> yeah, we, he, it was, nobody felt a lack of anything, Lane. So just so you know, none of this is about you. Or um, I went to him one day. And I was really self-conscious in sobriety. I thought all these big things of myself, and none of them were true. And I'm pointing out another guy, and I go, uh, that guy thinks he's better than me. I always get the idea that that guy thinks he's better than me. And, and Ben was like, that guy? It's not even close. He's so much better than you. Like, what are you talking about? Like, You're a puddle. That guy's like a human being. He has two jobs. Like, the cops aren't even chasing him. How could you make that comparison? That's hysterical. Yeah, no, he was, but he was really big on praying. And it helped that it came from a tough guy. Because, you know, I kind of mistakenly, I think, thought I was kind of a tough guy. Um, oh, yeah. I never, I, I never I was, had that illusion. Well, I, I hung out with tough guys. And, like, I think they let me think that. And I was, I am, I'm fearless. But that's not toughness. I'm fearless, and if it all goes down, I'm just going to get beaten up or arrested or killed or whatever. So it's like it's not like being tough. It's like being dumb. Right. But well, there's a certain bravery, stupid bravery to it. I I, I guess my, I remember my daughter asking me about this when I was young, and I said I don't actually think I have the ability to experience bravery or courage because I don't have appropriate fears. It's like an autism. Like like I'm not overcoming it. I'm too dumb to realize how bad this is going to be. So give me an example of this kind of thing. Well, when I was young, you know, gambling, I I would just, I I would just be like, I'm going to bet a thousand dollars on this game. And, 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 you know, people be like, well, do you have a thousand dollars? It'll be fine. It won't be fine. Like people really hate it when you bet a thousand dollars and you don't have a thousand dollars. They really hate it if they paid you off seven grand the week before, because you got lucky on the first 10 things you did. And they come, you lose seven back to them, and they're like, where's my seven grand? And you're like, I don't even, how could I have seven grand? I deliver pizzas and live with my mom. Are you crazy? Exactly. <laughs> so when did, uh, when did it all start going wrong? Like, I mean, I like going backwards. Right. I think this is fun. Yeah, no. When did it start going wrong? When did you realize that you, like, when did the puddle start to form? You know, I heard an expression recently that I think I almost want to steal from Bob the German, a friend of mine, uh, in our group. And he said... He described. Is he called Bob the German? I, he, I, we had a bunch of Bobs at one point, and he's like really German. He's like a, a little guy with the spectacles, and he's very, um, very responsible and very uh, regimented. Whereas everybody else in the group is maybe a little more fly by the seat of your pants. Now, you know, at the time that he was using, he was a, a maniacal IV 
uh, user and crackhead, but now you think he's like this pillar and he's you know, Bob the German. Um, and he goes, I had five years of fun, five years of fun with trouble, and five years of trouble. And I think, yeah, I, probably. So I would say this. I started drinking when I was 13 or 14. I started a little, I had skipped a grade. So I was in ninth grade, and I, was, uh, I had skipped seventh grade after making all Fs. And that's the level to which I was enabled. I, would, I made literally all Fs, and my parents went to the school and said, he's bored. And the school was like, He's too smart for this. Can't smart. you see he's failing out? Yeah, yeah, he's thinking, <laughs> you can't get anything right. So I skipped seventh grade, and I went to the eighth grade. How'd you do? Oh, so much worse. Like, it, how could I do? I refused to do any work. But here's the thing. I was this kid at this time who did nothing but read every single minute I was awake, including in school. I just went to school with my book, which was whatever my dad had been reading the day before, and read for seven hours, and went home and read all day. Um, so it was maddening to my teachers and my parents because I knew everything. Like, like, but I just was not, I did no homework, I did no projects, I was not involved. And I have no idea, like again, appropriate fear should have made me do the bare minimum. I eventually became like the only middle class or solid middle class or upper middle class Jew I've ever known that didn't graduate from high school. You didn't um, graduate did from high school. Did not graduate from and high you're, school. And you're, I mean, I don't know if I even made this clear. Lane is a, a, a columnist for, uh, what, are you, what is your title? So I'm a columnist and member of the editorial board for uh, Newsday. New yeah. York Newsday. And, and I, I grew up reading Newsday. It was the only color sports section in Manhattan. <laughs> That's right. So I would buy it to read about the Knicks. And, and, um, and I, I assume that when you would read like that, it was also the beginning of your alcoholic addict sort of escape. Like you got drawn yeah. to something that was beautiful and brilliant mm -hmm. that stoked your imagination right. and your intellect, but it also provided you with the escape. Well, and, and there's a way society deals with that that I've come to realize once I was a father was wrong. Kids watch TV 14 hours a day and they just catch hell from the adult world. Kids read 14 hours a day for the same emotional need for, for, for release. And They're brilliant. speaks about it positively, right. All right, so we were talking about when it started to get out of control. I start drinking a little bit in ninth grade, and then I totally fell basically out of ninth grade. And, and my parents' response this time is, well, he's bored. He should go to a boarding school. Apparently, those boarding schools are for people who are bored. And let me point out at this time, too, that they didn't have any money. Like, this was... I mean, they didn't not have money. We lived in a decent house, but it was in South but Carolina. But it's not boarding school money. It, no, we didn't have boarding school money. My, you know, we had college loans and everything, and, and my parents just worked... My dad designed computer systems, so if, had he lived... Or been younger or lived longer, he probably would have ended up a lot more prosperous. But he was an alcoholic, too, and we were like four children living in this house, and good people, but, it, you know, it was all nuts. So they sent me to boarding school, and everyone... You know, Lane's a terrible student. He... Uh, the other thing I did is, I don't know how you were in, in active addiction, but I was not someone with long hair and Grateful Dead bumper stickers and ratty t-shirts. Like, I was going to wear a button-down shirt and short hair and khaki pants and loafers, and I was going to be left alone by cops, and I was going to be left alone by adults, and I was going to chase girls and be bombed every fucking minute of my life. And, and that really worked for me. Like, I got into a lot less trouble because I just said, I'm going to... I'm going to represent myself as a member of the establishment. I'm not looking for trouble. You cannot chase girls in jail. 
you cannot, you know, I just wasn't into it. But and, you were also like a member of the establishment, basically. You know what I mean? Like, right. Because you were, you were benefiting from the system. And I, oh, and right. I mean that in every way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like yeah. when you, I mean, like I was a fucking, I was, I, I had burned up pants and right. shit. And I, but I was a terrible heroin addict. Right. Yeah, no, and so also, you didn't have a whole plan. And also yeah. I, I entered <laughs> drug addiction by, by the means of like, Jack Kerouac and and Jerry Garcia and mm. all that bullshit. Like right. I was drawn to that sort of uh, outsider artist culture. Right. So like that's what drew me in. So like either way, we all get drawn in right. and kind of tumbled well, into the machine. I was from a very buttoned down family where at least on my father's side, all the men drank to incapacity every night. They came home from their jobs where they wore a tie, and they also I have to say the drunk men in my family were sweethearts. Like, I didn't grow up around violence or, or anything. Thank and, God. Yeah, no. They, and they went to work to the best of their ability. And if they lost a job, they got another job. And, and they tried to send us to college. And we had a great... I have, you know, one thing that I've, I've just had to separate myself from, from a lot of other addicts is the people that come to you and they're like, oh, my worst day sober is better than my best day on drugs. I'm like, you or drinking. I'm like, you weren't drinking right. I had wonderful days drinking. Like, I, why would I have done it right. for 20 years? You well, know? I think that's a, it's a convoluted statement. Like, somebody explained the actual statement to me once. Mm-hmm. Like, uh, what is it? My, my worst day sober. They explained it to me. Right. But, but obviously. I get it. Some spiritual yeah, thing with the God and the love. We and the never. Stuff, had a great time. It never would have happened otherwise. <laughs> if it wasn't fun, if it didn't um, work. You know, if you didn't have those first good five years before the five fun years with trouble, it would never have happened. And I never got into a ton of trouble. And I'll tell you, so this is a funny story to me. When my wife and daughter were living up here, they, they came to my anniversary several times, which they were always glad to do. My, my daughter kind of grew up around AA and is into it. My wife is very glad that I got sober. But my wife never demanded that I get sober. She didn't necessarily see that as the problem because I, was, I think she just thought I was an asshole. And arrogant, and, and not lazy, but like, <laughs> she, or but because she came from a family where people drank a certain amount but could handle it, like it wasn't. I would play golf with her father, and he would have a drink at nine in the morning before the round, and not have another one until five that night. Oh my God! I just so I used to have a sponsor in South Carolina who died named Bob McCall, and he had this amazing phrasing that I, I still use in meetings now. And he, he'd just look at you. He was like the seventy-five-year-old super southern guy, and he'd look at you and say. I didn't have my first drink until I was 12, but I could have used one for years before that. <laughs> right. And I really related to that because all of the problems that came up in my active use life were there years before I ever had a drink, that I was a terrible student who wouldn't do homework, and I was so self-centered, and I lied about everything. And it was really painful because actually all I wanted to be was like academically successful and, and beloved and... and I wanted to be the things people thought I was, this brilliant kid and, and successful. I wanted to go to Harvard and be a prick and make lots of money and make everybody do what I said. And I couldn't do any of it. Like, I made straight Fs, and I would, every day, I would, I'm, today I'm going to do the schoolwork, today I'm going to do the homework, this and that. And I would come home and not be able to make myself do any of it all day long. And, and so when I say, so when did I start to know it was going bad? It was hard for me to pick up on it because there was no aspect of my life that worked or was successful before I started using Right. Um, except the reading muscle. Except the reading muscle. And, and I did, I used to, you know, I was very spoiled. Um, I, I used to say that I was sort of very much a typical little Jewish prince only child, that my parents treated me as this Jewish prince only child. 
which was really unfair to my sister. That's yeah. hysterical. <laughs> yeah, she doesn't think it's that hysterical, <laughs> but luckily we are very close. Uh, you know, she knows it wasn't my fault that she wasn't that neither of us were parented properly. Um, so uh, all of a sudden, so my life went to nothing but trouble, but to now nothing but trouble plus a numbing agent. I was always not trying to do things because I knew if I tried to do things, I was going to prove that I was actually useless. Where if I just pretended, if I was just a barstool writer, then nobody would ever know I couldn't be a writer. They would just know that I never tried. I actually, but then I did, I did get kicked out of that boarding school, and it was entirely <laughs> because of drugs and alcohol, and it was one of these crazy, I guess it might have been one of my earliest really crazy stories. Let's hear it. Yeah, so at Petty, they had a rival named Blair. Keep it up here. It sounds so much better. Okay, when I'm sorry. They, they, there's a, the, they have a rival with, with a school named Blair, which is also a New Jersey boarding school in Blairstown, New Jersey. And they have a, a rivalry because they're both great wrestling schools. Blair's a better wrestling school. They're both great swimming schools. Petty's a better swimming school. I was a, a poor swimmer, but I swam with the guy who won Olympic gold at Petty. Um, and, and so there's Blair Day, and everybody, if it's at Petty, everyone from Blair comes to Petty for all the athletics and all the blah, blah, blah. And, and if it's at Blair, everybody goes to Blair and all the athletics and blah, blah, blah. And I had had um, pneumonia that year, so I actually wasn't swimming on the team that year. And so only, like, the biggest drug users in the school thought, this is this incredibly festive, exciting, important thing where everyone's going to take a road trip and we should fucking stay here. We should just stay here like the seven of us locked in a room and get bombed and then go out and explore nature and play Vietnam in the woods. And Sounds perfect. So we do that and we have all of our chemicals and we're about 45 minutes from the city, okay? So we send a freshman to the city to get acid for us and we commence, they put them on a, we put them on a bus. It's like a 45-minute bus ride to Port Authority, cab down to Washington Square Park, get us some window pane, come back. And meanwhile, we start to commence on our buzz, which is basically like we're smoking a little weed and we're drinking early morning. And somebody had put together like a pill salad. So we've done a little salad to kick things off. What's in the pill salad? Oh, I have no idea, man. Just okay. pills. Like okay. whatever. I'm I guess some you. opioids. And, I mean, it was the... It was the 80s. It was the late 80s. Whatever so, was in the medicine yeah, cabinet. Right. Whatever has somebody yeah. had. Probably Black Beauty. So, you know, there's a lot of speed then and a lot of... It wasn't like everybody was doing Xanax. or I don't even know, like, think we knew what that shit was or Adderall. But so anyway, so this kid gets back and now we're half bombed and it's probably noon or one in the afternoon and we take our acid and we... I mean, I was 14 or, or 15 years old and I thought I was so cool and sophisticated. And, you know, we... As you do on acid, you spend 12 hours wandering around and then trying to find some depressant that'll take the edge off. So it's like wander, wander, wander liquor. Wander, wander, wander weed. I, I remember one, I, like, I walked around with my tray in the cafeteria at dinner for like an hour because I couldn't decide which table to sat down, sit down at, and I finally just left. So I'm out and about with people wandering around campus, and there's maybe five of us that actually took acid. And some of them start to lose it. And... They go to the infirmary, and I don't know any of this is going on. Like, I'm sitting out on a f in a field with a girl trying to be, like, Bugging out, philosophical, yeah, 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 yeah like, yeah. trying to get laid. And uh, this is all going on. More and more people are going to the infirmary. Now, two of them are there, and they're asking, who else took it? It must be bad acid, blah, blah, blah. And I, I wander back towards Dormward on, like, 12 o'clock or 1 o'clock, and they're like, what's going on? Oh, your friends are there. Did you do that? And I'm like... 
I don't know what you're talking about. I'm like, I had, I had, I had been. <laughs> you played sitting, it cool. I had been sitting in Famiglia's Pizzeria in Heightstown, New Jersey, for like four hours trying to straighten out and talk to this girl after we went to the park, and I'm fairly straight. And I always did. I think a lot of the reason a lot of us stayed in this life for so long is that we were good at it, and I was good at drinking, and I was good at using drugs and, and expressing myself and doing what I needed to do, and I sold this thing. I wasn't part of it. And the next day, they ratted me out, okay? And one of the kids, they thought they were helping me out. And they told him, Lane did take it. Like, you need to make sure he's okay. So no harm, no foul. They thought they were doing the right thing. And they come to me the next day, and they're like, we need you to take a urine test. And I'm like, oh, this isn't going to go well. But I know that acid, at least the, the urban legend was that acid only stayed in your bu- uh, bloodstream 24 hours at the time. Something so like I'm that. So I'm like, we, gotta, we, gotta, <laughs> we need a delay game here. I said, listen. So I went the opposite way with it. I said, listen. I was in New York City three weeks ago, and I took LSD there off campus. None of your business, not your problem. Don't worry about it. But you're a very sophisticated kid. I was so manipulative. And, and I'm like, so if you can get a doctor, someone, a scientist to tell me that that won't show up on the urine screen, then I'll be, I'll be happy to take yes. one. This is Sunday afternoon. Everyone was tripping Saturday, right? They call my dad. They try to get my dad to take me the piss test and, and dad says, hand laying the phone. My mother's screaming in the background. My dad goes, are you actually going to get away with this? And I said, just, just, just let me shoot my shot. <laughs> and he goes, all right, shoot your shot. Because they paid $25,000 or $30,000 or borrowed it or whatever. Like, like, this is a high-stakes gamble. My mother never forgave my father for letting me pull this caper off, okay? But the, he has the phone. He says, Lane is, the, the, my father tells him, Lane is in charge of whether he's going to take a urine test or not. He's the filler on the ground. Um, and they can't find anyone to assure me that this is okay. And the next day they check into it and realize that it won't be in my bloodstream anymore. It was only for 24 hours. So I don't know what I think I've won here because at this point I'm barely attending class. I'm failing everything. Um, but I think I've won something, except I still, like, I'm such an addict. Like, we're drinking so much at this point that even when I go to bed not bombed, like, I can't get up in time to actually be at classes on time. So they basically have my first period teacher start locking the door when I'm running late. And within two weeks, I've gathered enough, enough tardies that they can kick me out if they want to. And the day before they were going to kick me out, I withdrew. So it's a, it's a great drug story about my caper. But as I think this so often happens... Like, if you were to play the story out to the end, when did we ever win? Like, when did it ever really go our way? You it know? probably goes best when you get busted and you do hard time and you pay and you have the consequences. Right. It's like the con- – I mean, like, like my stupid story was I got busted with weed uh, and, and, and I had applied to transfer earlier. I got busted with weed, kicked out, accepted to the other school, and just went. You know? So – and I had the same sort of feeling like I had pulled right. off – you know, the impossible and nobody, I didn't tell my, my mother died not knowing it. And I told my father like last year or something, right. you know, but it didn't help me in my when, drug when addict. I, no, I get that. When I got my job as a sports columnist in Wilkesbury, which was a night Ritter newspaper, they didn't know I had been laid off by the paper I was working for when I applied for to them three weeks before for a series of misadventures. And it just, it didn't, it didn't become evident in time. And I, I think I probably resigned. But yeah, the, that was like letters got crossed in the mail. And um, it, it was so lucky. And I don't know, but you say that like if we had found a bottom earlier, if we'd had to pay our f- consequences earlier, would something have changed? And 
I don't know, man. Like, if any sane person would have thought I was paying consequences, I was a, a, like a pizza delivery guy. You know, like at the age of 23 or 24 or 25, I was, I was delivering pizzas when I should have been like in law school or something. Like, it was all a disaster. I never, I was always 300 bucks behind. I was always working 80 hours a week to no good purpose. Like, but that was fun. Yeah. Before fun with trouble. It was, it was fun before fun with trouble. Like, yeah, I, one thing is I was so arrogant, and, and different people might be different with this, but I think a lot of times people fight to stay successful in addiction because they have low self-esteem. And if they don't have something positive they can hang on themselves, like income or diplomas or stuff like that, like they feel terrible. And the thing, I am like the real egomaniac with an inferiority complex, and there's a big part of me, particularly in active addiction, that no matter how badly things are going, I feel great about myself. I'm like, I'm amazing. The piece of shit at the center of the yeah, universe. Kind yeah, of yeah, yeah. And it's just not true. But I, the great I am when I'm in active addiction is just out of control, my ego. And so one thing that kept me in the life is I didn't really feel bad about being a pizza delivery driver because I was so amazing anyway. But there was, there, I mean, like for me, I always felt good when there was something, I, I think I always have st- struggled with self-esteem and insecurities, and I always need something going on. Mm-hmm. Like, I, like, let's say, even if it's a dream, like when you were the pizza delivery guy getting bombed oh, at 23, yeah. what was running you? There, was, there It can't just be ego. There had to have been something else. I thought, you know, that's one thing. If there's one thing that I really am glad of or, or feel grateful about, in recovery, something I came to realize, I'm not depressive. I have almost no depressive tendencies. And even in the depths of my addiction, most of the time, yeah, you have a day when you think about suicide because you lost all your money plus this, but whatever. But most of the time, I really thought things would somehow get better. Even, I was drunk and sitting on the bar stool, and I'm like, you know what? I'm going to get this shit in order. I'm going to not drink tomorrow. We'll go back to school or I'll write that book. And I did eventually manage to become a professional writer in addiction. Which Were you like a Bukowski me. fan? Were you one of those guys like who wanted to write about the worst stuff? And the, the Not really. I was pretty buttoned down. Like I was pretty conservative, like other than wanting to be bombed. And you, like I was a very, I mean, I was very socially liberal and everything. Like I wasn't that kind of a conservative, but I was like, you know those users that were kind of libertarian? Usually the super arrogant ones from a little bit of privilege that are like, no, the world is as it is because people of merit. No, you don't have any merit, bitch. Why are you living under a roof? Oh, oh, my parents have a little <laughs> yeah, bit of merit. They, they had some merit. They, they gave yeah, you a little bit of merit. This is something I really had to realize in, in recovery is that everything I thought about myself was just a lie, you know, in terms of, of how hard I'd worked or what, what part of society I belonged to. So, no, I read, um, I read a lot of P.J. O'Rourke. I read a lot of, of political stuff. My dad, so I came from a compulsive reading family. We, like, had a house built out behind our house for the books. Uh, and my dad was really into newspaper columnists and... There's a story about that and how I actually got my job in, in journalism even while I was still in addiction. And it's very, it's very even to tell it now, it's very weird. But so my dad and I were very, very close. And there was no time while he was alive when I ever did anything positive except maybe one thing. He was, he was dying of pancreatic cancer. He knew in his heart I had relapsed. I had, I had been in a rehab before and gotten 90 days. 
And this was in 1997. And when I got out of rehab, I got a job at the state newspaper down there, not, not as a writer, but as a uh, running their telemarketing department. And I realized that I wanted to be a writer while I was doing it. My dad had been in IT for the Wall Street Journal when he was young. And I wrote a letter to the editor to the state newspaper, and they printed it. And then I wrote a letter to the editor to Time Magazine. And my dad was dying at this time, and Time Magazine printed my letter. And so then I wrote a third letter to the editor of USA Today. And USA Today, I'll never forget it, it, it ran on August 6, 1997, and they made my letter the featured letter of the day. Awesome. And it was about Congress. And they actually ran it above, featured, black box, mine was featured above a letter from Colin Powell. And... My father was really at the end at that time, and he had been away. It was the last time they ever went away. He and my mother had been to North Carolina. They came back, and, and he, he was quelling. He no, he could listen. This is crazy. He could barely make it into the house. He had to sit at the kitchen table, and then we had to like wheel him back into the bedroom. And this is absolutely true. My father said the piece that you ran in USA Today was was amazing. He said it was not only was it correct. The point you were making was politically correct, but it was really beautifully written. He said, I was so proud of you. And he went back into his bedroom and he lapsed into a coma and we never spoke again. That was the last thing he said to me. Oh my God. And I'm relapsed and I'm working this weird office job overseeing telemarketers and he died and I quit this job managing these 25 people and wearing a tie and making decent money and I was able to get a job at the King's Tree News as a reporter. I was honest with him. I'm a high school dropout. I'm this, I'm that. But if you'll give me a writing test, I think I could do this for you. It was a weekly newspaper in King's Tree, South Carolina, with a circulation of 4,000. I was their only reporter. They paid me $325 a week. And that's how I became a journalist. Amazing. Yeah, it's a really freaky story. No, it's and, a great... Uh, did you get that job based on that letter? Yeah. So you were oh, like, look I at this. There's three letters, yeah. <laughs> my dad yeah, liked my it before dad he died. He's dead. Take my me mom, on. I, I'm living with my mom at this time. I kind of got fired, kind of quit that state newspaper job. I'm sure I'm aggrandizing the story in my mind now. I mean, I wanted to get fired to collect unemployment while I looked for a job, because that's how addicts look at life. My sister was telling my mom to kick me out of the house. And my sister and I are very close, but she was like, you got to find him a bottom. Like, he could, he could live like this in perpetuity, you know? And uh, it's interesting to me. I don't know about other people, but I do think there's a lot of things that happened before I was in recovery that were part of my recovery. Uh, I was not... When I got sober, for real, and I was married... I was nowhere near the level of alcohol and drug usage I had been at 10 years before. What was the worst state? Like, the, the, when, you, when you, like, because you, you got that job, which is basically a nightmare dream job. You know, right. it was the job that, that opened your life up, but mm. you were using. You were in relapse. I was using, and my dad was dead, and I was so, such a combination. But I had to work. It had to work. I was an addict with a huge ego, and my only way out was to be able to affix this word journalist to me. That's a real thing. Bitch, I'm a real thing. And if I could have been successful as a journalist and been a real thing using, I would have been allowed to keep fucking using. Right. Forever. Right. But I couldn't. Because it's very <laughs> rare that you can. <laughs> I couldn't. Like, I, you hear these stories about Hemingway and, like, how do you write hungover like that? Like, I couldn't. I was just this sweaty ball of fuck up. And, and I would not even, like, I would, I would just, I couldn't eat. And um, 
So yeah, I, I had to succeed and I couldn't succeed and I worked really hard at it, but sporadically and I, but it, it, it did start to come together and I couldn't, I couldn't let go of it because my only lifeline to anything I thought about myself was the idea that I could be a successful journalist. And I hate to say this, but that, that at that time, more than anything else, what got me sober was not the problems I was having with my wife, was not the financial problems. It was the fact that if I washed out of my newspaper job at that point... You had nothing. Nothing. My, my, I had no self-esteem. My ability to define myself in a, in a meaningful way was gone. And so I got sober because I was going to get fired. And, but you ask when the chemicals were the worst and when the addiction was the worst, and that would have been about a year before my dad died, six months or a year before my dad died. So I had been in all these businesses with these guys who became incredibly successful because they were not, they didn't have the problems with substances I, I did. Even though we partied together, they could have families. They could be organized. They could send a letter, pay a bill. Uh, they, they didn't have alcoholism. <laughs> they, uh, were not. they either didn't have alcoholism or they were far more functional. I don't, you know. Right, or, right, right. Yeah, but so they, they were fine. I don't blame, they, no problem. But I couldn't do it. And it, these people are millionaires now um, and, and still very close friends of mine. I, I speak to them. They're part of my life. We don't hang out in the way that we once did. I hang out with them with my family and their families. Like I can't necessarily hang out with them just crazy social stuff because we don't socialize the same way we once did. But we had been partners. We were partners in a roofing company and a bar. They sold the big bar, which I did not own part of, the village. And uh, they, we, we started a roofing company, and, and we bought another little bar for cash flow, and it was a nightmare place. Like, the first one had been this big college bar in the Five Points area of Columbia, and this other one was, like, a private club redneck honky-tonk falling down, like just a way for us to generate some cash. It had gambling machines in it, which were legal at the time. And so they went off to run the roofing business, and they leave me to run this bar that's just crammed full of meth and coke and crazy people, and I plummeted. I mean, I would just, I would sleep on the pool table and then wake up in the next morning and start bartending again. Uh, I couldn't keep the books straight, which weren't very difficult to keep straight. It was, you know, $500 coming in in cash, Go buy beer, um, and, and I just. <laughs> but that was that was too much for you. Uh, it, no, I was. I they later said so in South Carolina at that time they still had the mini bottle law. All single serve liquor was sold in airplane bottles. South Carolina and Utah were the last to do it, and then South Carolina was the very last inventory. So it was very easy. We have a thousand bottles. We sold two hundred bottles. We should have eight hundred bottles. They said. My friend Dominic said after I left that from the best they could tell from the accounting. I was drinking 30 to 40 mini bottles of vodka a day. Right. Which I don't tell is some aggrandizing thing. There's people that drank 10, you know, however much. I'm not. One thing about my story is there's nothing exceptional about it. There's nothing special about it. I did not ever die on the operating table. I don't have outlandish legal stories. Like the only time I was ever arrested for DUI, my attorney got me off. Like by, he, he put it together a jury of six people who owed him money. You know, I was part of the establishment, and so I didn't. I don't have all those crazy stories, but um, th these are the things that happened to me. Not to mention, then. like even anybody. I, I think crazy stories are often bad for people. You know, I think crazy right. stories give people an idea that they are something special. And when they talk about garden variety drunk, yeah. or they talk about um, what's the what's the the great expression? Um, fucking hell. Terminally unique. Terminally unique. Yeah. And and there's another one. There's one from Narcotics Anonymous, which was like uh 
it, it's it's the same thing, but with the word "cool" in it. I forgot what it is. It's a great it's a great expression. Oh. My my friend Chris, who I used to do the show with, would would rattle these expressions right. off. Yeah. Um, but you have the stories too. It's just a matter of finding some humility well, in a. In the fact that we all fucked up and yeah. we all needed to find something else. I'm such a jerk in all of my stories. Well, the funny thing about thinking you don't have stories is that part of that is a function of being kind of removed from it and being more buttoned down and more straight. And so I was driving here and I was like, you know, like I was just, I just worked and I went home and I drank every night. And I don't, and then I started thinking of, of things that actually happened. And you're like, you're lying to yourself. You were completely insane. It was utterly out of control. You were always in trouble with the law. You were a thief and a liar. You were completely untrustworthy. You drove drunk with your wife in the car. You drove drunk with your child in the car. You, particularly when you traveled on road trips, I was completely out of control once you got me out of the city limits. Um, I left a car running at an airport and got on a plane. I, I, and what I, happened to the car? Uh, you know what? The reason partly I did it, I was incredibly late for this boys' road trip to Miami, and I was incredibly late for the flight. I had tried to stay up all night drinking and had passed out, and my girlfriend was like, kicking me awake. Are you getting on this flight or not? And part of the reason like, I didn't care about leaving it that way is I had bought it from a drunk buddy who's also in sobriety now, and he was so disorganized, he would never get me the title. He couldn't find the title, and he wouldn't get me a replacement title, and I had given him $400 in cash for this 1979 Toyota Tercel station wagon that you could literally turn on with a screwdriver if you couldn't find the key, and I drive drunk every night, and I'm like, I can't drive an unregistered vehicle drunk every night. Like, that was my level of self-preservation, as I knew that. Like, that, that's go to jailsville. You don't want you that. No, thing. you don't want to get pulled you, over. You don't want I would drive with a headlight out forever, but somehow that I guess that wasn't as big a deal back then. I frequently did get stopped and get charged with driving under suspension and then have to clear up the ticket and the suspension the day before the court date to prove the thing so they wouldn't take your license forever. It was just this endless mitigating road, consequences yeah, just as, crazy. as much as you can. Right. So what happened to the car you left running? So I left it the, running and then I flew off to we we went to Miami. Uh we were just getting bombed. I had the worst hangover ever after compounding 48 hours of drinking with a Wolfie smoked fish platter, okay. which is just paralytically dehydrated. Yes. Okay. And I, we, the day before we fly back, we take all the rest of our LSD. We go to Hialeah Racetrack. Literally, before we get on the plane, I hit the trifecta, the exacta, and the wind bet in the last race, won $2,500, fly home, and with my buddy who was on the trip, buy his Nissan Sentra for cash. So I've, now I've got a car, and I had left stuff in that car, and I, I told them some story. There was stuff I needed to get out of it, so I told the tow people that it wasn't mine, but it was my roommate's, and I needed to get in it to get my sweaters and stuff. And they let me. People were always like, this is one of the things that is really the story of my life, is that people just let me do things, and no one understands why, to the point of like, my, my wife or my daughter, people will be like, listen, we've got a problem here and you're going to have to call because we have to get them to do it. And I tried to call and they wouldn't do it. And I'll call and they'll be like, sure, of course we would do that. Like, we do that for anyone. And my wife's like, I hate you. So my daughter's like, there was one that happened recently and I don't even remember what it was. She was like, it was something that I arranged for her 
that was going to be life-changingly important if it went wrong, and she was still fucking furious that they did it for me. She's like, I am a goddamn human being, but it's all the time. Well, that's your superpower. Yeah. Your superpower is fitting in and then making right. it work. And I think <laughs> one thing we missed in this great story, it sounds like gambling was a thing. Gambling was a thing. <laughs> uh, gambling was a thing, and I don't know. Like, I just felt like, like I didn't have any... I'm a decent poker player. I'm a fair country poker player. I still play poker. I still on occasion bet sports a little bit. Does it fuck you up? Do you get high? Do you get low? Does it, does it, does it no, hit you in those places? No, because I don't bet enough. And that's the reality is, like, one thing about gambling, it isn't actually gambling if you can pretty easily afford to pay it off. Right. You know, like, it's, gotta, it's, it's not gambling unless there's really something to lose. And so right. what I do that's now, if I bet on a football game or whatever... In order for it to be gambling in the way that our drinking was drinking or I was gambling when I was young, you'd have to add a zero to it. Like, you'd literally have to add a digit to what I do. And for some, and, and I'm, you know, to be honest, I'm also not, I was a drinker. The way I was about drugs throughout my life was if they come along, that's fine. I wasn't much of a seeker. I didn't care, but I, because, I, you know. Well, I, alcohol did it for you. Yeah. I, it did the job. It, it did didn't the job, do the job for me. And I'm a simple guy. And if you give me a drug that'll do the job, that's legal, easy that's to get, inexpensive, cheap, cheap accessible. Yeah, yeah. Like so they're open and you just go in. I'm like, that's me. <laughs> yeah. That's more me. That fits than your life. Now, once I got bombed, if somebody comes wrong, we were talking about it recently. And like, I was a waiter for a long time. And the funny thing about staffs of like the, the normal getting bombed people is that it was like music. Like if somebody got hired at Outback who was Coke boy, everybody became Coke boy for like three months. And then he got fired. I'm actually thinking of one particular person. Yeah, Coke boy. Coke boy. And he got fired, and we all went back to not really using Coke. Because, like, whatever, who cares? It's fucking three in the morning. So, but my point being, so, yeah, I do still gamble on occasion. Uh, And I'll also say that in sobriety, I've not had a drink in 17 years. But I absolutely have had painkillers. I have had muscle relaxers. I was, for a long time until I was diagnosed with a heart problem, uh, a distance runner. And uh, a heavier weightlifter than I am now, and I was always in pain, and or I would hurt my back. Not often, but you weren't but taking it for fun. You were I, taking I, it because you'd get hurt. I was. I wasn't taking it for fun, which is not to say that I'm very good at following the written directions about an opioid. If I'm to be totally honest, if it says two every four hours, I'm pretty quickly going to take four every two hours. What I'm not going to do is get a refill. Right. For better or worse, that's where I'm at. In, in my those life. situations, did you tell your sponsor? Or, did, or was, it a, was it a secret? Did you ever get scared? I mean, I know that... I think I, have to, I, I, think I did tell my sponsor at the time. Um, but again, it's like the gambling. It's a weird thing. It's right. like as long as you don't actually have the consequences of getting addicted to them, you made it out. You know what I mean? Like I, I drank NyQuil. Right, uh, because I I liked sleeping heavy, and then late, lately people are like, you can't drink so much Nyquil because it could be it's something. A thing. Maybe it's so a I, thing. So right. I stopped drinking Nyquil, and you might have had that happen with the opiates, but it didn't happen. Is my point? Yeah, and you know, I, I I there are people who are pure as can be and wouldn't eat something with a marinade, and you wouldn't use mouthwash. I had some of that going on when I first got into the program, and I get it, and I don't judge it at all. Everybody's different. I'll tell you something funny. I was at a casino playing poker with my buddy in AA, and we had gone for 24 hours. I think we were in, we think we were in Philadelphia. I think we were playing at Parks. He's more of a horse guy. I'm playing poker. And these guys start talking about how they off to leave. You go to the meeting? Hey, Jimmy, you go to the meeting? It's anniversaries, Jimmy. 
whole fucking room is like not the whole room, but like at four different tables, there yes. are guys that are going to this big anniversary meeting in Philadelphia. And I say, that's funny. I'm here with my buddy. And it must have been in the autumn because I was with my buddy, Dennis. And we both celebrate in September and our group has an end. So we had like just celebrated. And I say, we're talking about the, yeah, everything. And then we talk about other stuff. One of the great things about playing poker in casinos, it's a, it's a genial game. It's like, social. Oh, yeah, it's social and you meet guys you like. And uh, we're talking about sobriety and everything. And we kind of taper off. And he goes, yeah, I haven't had one. And it was his anniversary. I haven't had one in 11 years or something. And he pushes a $50 bet into the, the middle. And I'm sitting to the left of him. So it's to me. He pushes the $50 bit in the middle. And he looks at me and he goes, but we got to have something, don't we? <laughs> yeah. I said, yeah. I, I am the kind of addict who had to have something. I had to run a marathon. I have to, I smoked cigars for a while. I, I, I you know, uh, took a weird job. And, and, and so. But I also think that has to do with um, kind of the thing that keeps you going. Um, when we talked on the phone in the first place mm. and you talked about kind of how much your life got better and how quickly it got better, like looking back, um, how instrumental was that to the to the sobriety lasting? You know what I mean? Like, oh yeah, 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 yeah. You yeah, were no, rocketed yeah. into Instant this gratification. I and I don't think I was planning to quit forever. I just wanted to get out of hot water, and I got so far out of hot water, and I was like, I just it got better so fast, and then like. I got a little of that respect and love, that real respect and love. My wife knew how hard it was for me. My boss knew how hard it was for me. And in the middle of that, we had to move. Like I said, we got the new place and I couldn't afford movers. So I like, and I was working two jobs. I was waiting tables and working at the paper at the time. And in between that, I physically moved our whole family, like with a little bit of help from one guy. And, and we got this house and things got a little better at work. And I just had to, I, it was working and I had to, have some gratitude, and I had to listen to it and make it part of my life. I couldn't let it go. And, and, and it was, it was it's amazing. And I appreciate your time, and I think we got in just under the hour, and I, okay. think, and I think it's a whole new recovery, Long Island, fucking Great South Bay episode of Dopey. <laughs> well, I, I really appreciate your having me. I didn't know how much I was going to have to say it's early in the morning, but it was I think fun, we got right? engaged it and we had good. fun. Yeah, yeah that's I, all really, I appreciate it. Thank you, man. Thank you. Right on. So that was Lane Filler of New York Newsday fame. Have you ever read New York Newsday, Amy? I think it's just called Newsday, isn't it? Yeah. Have you ever Is read it New York Newsday? I don't know. I don't know. Have you ever read Newsday, Amy? No, bitch. I have not. You have no. You have like zero experience in New York, then, right? Very little. Very little. I had a boyfriend, and I would go visit occasionally, and I was always like felt very frightened and overwhelmed there. And like, you know, I went to also to meet with my book agent and stuff like that. Even though it's a fucking grid, I got lost all the time. Everyone's like, "How can you get lost? It's a grid." And it's like, I just don't have a good sense of humor. I don't know a good sense of humor, a good sense of uh, direction. I I don't understand. I'm always going in the wrong direction, always. And your book agent's out here. Yeah, and the publisher was out there, too. That must have been incredibly exciting. But what did you think about um, Lane Filler? Like, you, you texted me a I lot. I liked of- him. I thought he had some, um, I thought he was really honest about some stuff. I thought he had a lot of insight into himself. Yeah. Which always, you know, it doesn't necessarily stop us from doing shady, shitty things, but we know that we're doing it. Um, he's one of those things that's, he's one of those people who's like almost too smart for his own good. His shtick about the worst day sober is better oh, than your best day using. That's always bugged me. That's always bugged me. 
I mean, I think that's bullshit also. I mean, I think that that's, you said you knew the original one. What's the original, original quote? Well, I don't know the original quote, but it's something like the idea is that your best day using, um, I know for me, right, my best day, I, I think what it is is that my best day using, and I had a ton of amazing days using where I was so happy to get drugs. And I, I I mean, like I would walk home from copping thrilled and I felt, I felt like I had gold in my pockets. Like I was so you're getting a dopamine rush in anticipation. Your body knows it's super fun and exciting. Yeah. It's just even thinking about those moments bring me uh, joy. But I think the idea, (laughs) no, I think the idea is that your best day using is only going to lead to your worst day you know, using, you know what I mean? There is no one good day using. I think that's the idea of it. Yeah. I just don't think they want to glamorize drug use at all, but I also don't dig people who like, I am sober and, um, but I love drugs. And if I could be high every day and like actually be productive and not have seizures and whatever, like, and not ruin my, like I would do it. Like, like, I don't like people who get sober and are like, drugs are bad. It's like, no, like drugs saved me from blowing my brains out for a long time. Yeah. So, I mean, I just, I don't think it has to be that black and white. Why does it have to be that extremist? I guess it, it doesn't. It doesn't. Um, he was like, I had a lot of great times being drunk. And I was like, okay. I mean, my, my, ta- my use was not that fun to be honest with you. You know, I, in the very, very beginning of my meth use, it was fucking awesome. And then it started to feel really like a prison that I couldn't get out of. And then, you know, shooting Coke by yourself is just fucking dark. You know what I mean? There's nothing like, it's not party. It's not fun. I mean, I liked it and I liked being numb and listening to music, but I didn't do anything productive and I didn't see people. I was never like a club or bar drinker because I got too violent and sexual and like mean and weird and would black out. So I got really clear really early on that I had to like stay at home by myself. You know, I've been talking to a lot of Coke shooters and Chris was a, was a crazy Coke shooter. I, when I would shoot Coke, like I would get the same thing that the bell ringing crazy sounds in your head. Uh, and mm-hmm. I'd get scared. You know what I mean? I wouldn't like, yeah, I, well you're about to like seize out. You're like, you're getting close to like a fucking, you're like, it's close to like a, I don't know if it's close to a stroke or what. Um, I didn't really hear the bell that was like from smoking crack, but I would hear, I would feel this like incredible like rush through me and then sometimes i'd overshoot and have a seizure right i mean even that would freak me out i always craved you know the warmth of heroin and the the i never felt that i smoked heroin once and i fell asleep and i was like that's boring and i never touched it again i was like bye yeah i think heroin definitely made me feel the way you described joe shrank as feeling like where you just i don't care (laughs) it's like so safe and right? I don't Just have like to worry. Unflappable. He's like unflappable. It's weird. I was unflappable then. Right. You know, and, and, and to your point, like I would have, you know, if there weren't consequences, I would have kept going. But, but right. I think, I really do think that's the point of your best day uh, using is better than your worst day in sobriety because there is no trajectory from the good day except to the fucking hell. Oh, of course. It's always going to get worse. 
Um, I mean, I, I'm happy my drug use was so extreme and that it and that it and that it went downhill so quickly, because if my if I had been able to be productive and functional and I would have kept going, I, I feel bad for people who can be productive and functional. If I could have done that, I wouldn't have gotten clean. I mean, I got clean because I was like, I'm going to fucking die. You know what I mean? Like, I'm going to end up in a wheelchair with, like, I'm going to stroke out. I'm going to be a vegetable. Like, I can't leave my house. Like, you know, I can't support this habit. Like, I mean, it just, I was not functional. Right. I couldn't hold a job. I could barely shower. Like, I'm, like, shocked by people who, like, hold jobs and stuff. I'm like, what? Well, I mean, you don't know where their trajectory is going to go. It's very rare that somebody stays there forever. Yeah, my shit, just, I mean, it was, you know, within a couple of years, I'm like, within a couple of months, I was back in rehab almost always. It was horrible. Right. With the ER. And I mean, I'm now I'm grateful for that. Well, it was like, a, it was a mechanism that kept you alive, right? Yeah, but it didn't get me sober for long. I get sober and then I'd relapse again. But back to Lane... Um, I think that, um, his Jesus and prayer stuff was interesting. I remember dating someone in very early sobriety. He was, was an old timer and I had four months. He had 17 years. Welcome to 13 stepping. And when I would sleep over at his house, he would pray and he'd get on his knees and I did it, but I felt really weird about it doing it in front of him. What he say? And I did it say, because he, he did said, it. Come, come pray with me now, Amy. That's no, God. no, he would just be like, okay, let's, we're going to pray before we go to sleep. And like, he would get on his knees and I just kind of followed, but I felt like, like I was doing it cause he was doing it. I felt like I was being judged. It's all the stuff that Lane talked about. Right. No, I think that's, I think that's, uh, it's interesting because. Or where people do grace before meals and I don't do that and I just sit and watch them and I feel really weird or I feel like I have to do it. Like I just, ooh. Well, I mean, I think the weird thing is that it is a spiritual program, that it is a spiritual solution and that I know that I do it all as a tool to, to make my life better, even though I'm just as confused about it as you are. I do it. But because- I'm totally cool with like saying the serenity prayer in meetings or like, like when met or like meditating in groups. Right. Right. You find what makes you comfortable and you do it, you know? You know? Yeah. And I think that makes sense. What about, I found this very interesting and I'd love to run this past you. Um, when he talks about getting hurt and getting the painkiller script and he would take double the dosage or whatever, right? But he wouldn't uh, refill his. Refill it. Wouldn't refill it. He would fucking not follow the doctor's directions, but he would not refill it. And he would not not reset his day count. Like, is yeah. like, is it a relapse? And what's your take on it? I mean, if you're going to go by AA hardcore standards. No, no, I'm going for you. Like, you get a script. You, you fucking get your teeth pulled out, right? And they give you hydrocodone because it's so painful. Do you say no to the hydrocodone or do you take it? Um, I hold the script and I try and get through with Tylenol. And if it gets too painful, I, I fill the script. Right. And then you take it as directed? Completely. Right, right. Yeah, I would I mean, take I it. I haven't had pain. I mean, I'm on phenobarbital and clonopin for my epilepsy. I've not ever abused it. 
Right. And I don't even feel it. Dude. And my and if anyone dares say I'm not sober, I'm like, fuck you. You know what I mean? Like I don't like I tried every other seizure medication. Like I don't want to live my life in a fucking helmet without a license, driver's license. Go fuck yourself. This is what works. I'm not abusing it. I don't feel it. You know, it's a real medical condition. My sponsor's completely on board. My favorite I think it's it's your own program. It's your own That's- program. I've had sponsees. And like literally they've said, I doubled my gabapentin or I took four Benadryl, you know, just, and I just said, well, I remember in the very beginning being very fucking hardcore about it and going, well, you got to reset your date. And she's like, if I have to reset my fucking date and like lose 90 days, it was like very early. She goes, I'll go smoke meth again. Like, fuck that. And my sponsor was like, you want to keep them in the fucking rooms. That's it. You want to keep them in the rooms. You don't want them to fucking go, oh, fuck it. I blew my time and I'm going to, you know, it's like, it's a diet. Like instead, you know, if you eat one Oreo, then you go, oh, fuck it. And then you fucking blow, you really blow it out. And I think the whole idea is like, you don't have to blow it out. You can go, okay. Like I had a little slip. Like Joe has gotten me really into the idea of like, we can, we should celebrate progress. And it's like, also like, it's his program. Like maybe down the road, he'll feel like, Hey, you know what? I don't feel good about that. And I want to reset my date or he won't. And it doesn't even matter. I mean, that's the biggest thing. It's no, I mean, it I doesn't that, fucking that, yeah. matter at all. No, the you know? whole thing on time. Do I think that Dak Shepard would have come out earlier if there wasn't so much fucking weight on time? in the program and that he wasn't famous and he had all his years. You know what I mean? Like that's the problem that time becomes more important than anything else. And it's like, it's like DJ am like, you know, after that motor, after that, um, plane, plane crash, crash. Yeah. he was on, on stuff. And I think that he, you know, abused it and he couldn't come out about it. And he fucking overdosed. Right. Because time becomes more important than anything else. And it's like, why do we look at this? And it, it's like, it's a chronic illness. When you're, if you're cancer company, we're never cured. So why are we surprised when people fucking slip up a little bit? It's like cancer. If you're, if you're in remission, you're like, yay. If you're still in remission in five years, you're like, holy shit, yay. But you're never like, I don't have cancer and ever again. Right, right. Which is why we have today, and which is why you need to have today. Uh, be about your recovery because if you're yeah, about your I recovery it was today, very brave of him to tell that story. I mean, to be honest, I think that, you know, a, a fundamentalist will absolutely fucking judge him, but it's like, it's none of my fucking business. It's his program. Right. From time to time, I've been known to drink NyQuil to help me sleep. And a fundamentalist would not be happy with that. No, that's they would a be like, that's a relapse. But, absolutely. you know, I, I think that's, that's very interesting. Now it's a very exciting day in the history of Dopey because we are introducing a new segment called Things <laughs> I Hate. Now, Amy, really quickly, what's a thing that you hate? A thing I hate, and this is going to be annoying, but I go on Google, right? And I uh-huh. Google something and fucking Yahoo pops up and it makes me insane. So when I go onto my fucking thing and I Google something, it goes to Yahoo, which isn't a good search. I hate that. It makes me sick that a company like Yahoo that was once so robust <laughs> is now a virus on my computer and I can't get rid of it. That's something that I hate, Amy. Wow. And that you started a podcast and didn't tell me. Now, what's something that you hate? Oh, wow. <laughs> um, 
I hate olives. I hate people who change lanes and don't put their fucking blinker on. I hate people who don't say thank you when you let them into your fucking lane. I hate. Wait, how are they going to say people. thank you? You just wait. That's a that's you a thank you. Put your fucking hand up yeah. and go. Thank hey, you. Thanks, yeah. Bro. Thank, thank you. Yes. Continue. What yeah. Else? You're good at I this. I don't like Keep going. people. I, I hate when people when you have two things at the market and someone has. 185 things and they don't go hey would you like to go in front of me i hate that I too do that all i do that all the fucking time to people and they are like shocked right i go oh you've only got th- go ahead and they're like are you sure but you know like, what you know what fucking kidney the they're flip so side shocked by the kindness the flip side of that is back in the day when i was using right and i would buy one thing i would be like you don't mind if i go in front of you do you i would do that to people all the time i'd have one or two things and i'd see what like, did they say they'd be like Duh. they'd get pissed they'd kind of wave <laughs> me into the lane kind of thing um what else do you hate it's i like this you hate a lot of stuff I hate when people decline my phone call, but then I text them with something that interests them and they call me right away. Uh, like, well, motherfucker, you do have your fucking phone. Oh, uh, terrible. Anything so else? So you do have your fucking phone. Anything else? Um, God, I mean, Jesus. I hate people who alt- who filter their photos so much they don't even look like themselves. Like, I think it's so creepy. That's crazy. That's crazy town. Who can do I hate like people who fucking only post what's good about going on in their life. And so it makes us all feel like fucking garbage. Nice. All right. Like, be real. Like, the world is so fucking disconnected and, like, we feel so alone. Like, you know what? let us feel connected. You know what be I authentic. hate? You know what I hate? I hate when my wife gives my daughter cereal and she fills the whole thing up with milk like we don't buy the most expensive organic milk. What does she think? We're made of money? She's wasting all this milk? And then I, and then I take out another bowl, a smaller bowl, and I, I, and, I, and I pour it in there and she goes, what are you doing? And I said, it's too much milk. And she, oh I, my hate God, I hate that. I hate that. Um, um, this is a great segment, by the way. This is great. Let's save God. it. Let's save it for the next time. The next okay. new. I have, I have so many. I mean, I have so many. Yeah, you're a treasure. But trove. But these are not resentments. These are called irritations. You're, They're different. You're a treasure trove of hatred. It's <laughs> great. great for the show. Um, so the next new segment is called "How's Your Pussy Doing?" So, Amy, how's your <laughs> pussy doing? Um, it's fine. Because when last you were on Dopey, you were at a health food store looking for medicine for your swampy vagina. It was not swampy. It was called, I called it an aquarium. Thank you. It was not swampy. Uh, I'm sorry. Um, I, I'm sorry. I apologize. Here's the, tr- here's the real truth. I am 50 years old and I'm going through perimenopause. So shit's changing. They bought me on, you know, progesterone. And it's not, and people get really weird talking about this. Like, you know, I think I'm not going to be afraid of my age and whatever. Like I'm lucky to fucking be alive and I look fucking good for 50. And it's like, you know what happens? You either get old or you die. Those are your fucking options. Yes. You know, if you're 25, one day, if you're lucky, you will also be 50 and you have to go on progesterone. So you don't fucking sweat your ass off at night and fucking rage and kill people and want to cry all the time and stuff like that. Um, they're, we're trying to fix the pH down there so that there isn't always some weird. I don't understand why there's weird stuff going on down there when there's no action down there. I just want to like literally like remove my vagina and throw it away. Like it's chronic stuff going on. 
I so never, now they're putting like a estrogen cream and we did a fucking BV cream and we did a yeast infection and it just always feels fucked up. And at this point, I'm wondering if it's something almost psychological, like I'm so shut down sexually and I'm so broken from my fucking last relationship that I'm manifesting. This might be too fucking L.A. and woo woo for people that I'm manifesting like a energy block and problems down there to keep people away you're manifesting vaginal problems to keep you out it's of a vaginal, relationship it's not vaginal we're it's in vaginal, new york in new york yeah. in new york we say vaginal we don't say vaginal. <laughs> i mean i shouldn't even be saying this on dopey but it's like whatever it's like real shit you know what i mean like it's the real shit it's like you know i mean joe does not like when i talk about my pussy at all there you go. Well, I regret asking how your pussy is, so I'm with Joe on this one. But I wish I, <laughs> I only send peace and love. You know to what, you. though? That's going to help women who feel fucking. Absolutely. Have, there's a stigma around perimenopause and around fucking shit going on. You know, it's supposed to be a self cleaning oven. I don't know why it's not self cleaning. I think you'll get back there. I think. I have not had any action since that one thing where that guy smelled his, my finger and I went over. That's the last time anyone has kissed me or touched me. Well, listen, it's only today. Tomorrow. But I'm not saying I want weirdos to like contact me because I get weirdos all the time who are like 22 or like, I read your book in prison and I want to marry you. I'm like, oh my God. Well, listen, I think uh, if any weirdos are interested in Amy's vagina, just write me an email no, at dopeypodcast no. at gmail.com and I'll, and I'll screen oh, the, God. I'll screen the entries. Oh my I'll sc- God. I'll screen the weirdos. You know, it's if- not swampy. I mean, I just, I'm not proud of it. And it's like, I mean, I should take probiotics and I'm eating yogurt, but it's like women understand some of us are prone to this shit. I think you should get on your knees in the morning and ask God. And pray for God to fix my pussy. Yeah, for a vision for your, for your vagina to be, you know, where you want it to be. I think God. I want it to just be normal. I don't want to fucking, you know, whatever. I'm on progesterone and fucking I don't sweat anymore and I'm not crazy. So it's like, whatever. I mean, it is what it is. Like if a guy, you know, is not down with it, it's like I'm I'm 50. J-Lo's 50. I'm sure she's on fucking progesterone too. Now let's not jump to any conclusions on what J-Lo might or might not be taking but I want to do the Ask Amy, the newest of the new segments. We did Things I Ate. Before we go, we have emails to read. Yeah, we're not going to do all of them. This is getting crazy. Oh, okay. This is what we're going right. to do. We're going to do, we did Things I Hate. We did How's Your Pussy. And now we're doing Ask Amy. I hate you so much. I hate you so much. These are really good segments. You don't like these segments? <laughs> oh, my God. Oh, my God. Amy, you have every right to take anything you want out. No, whatever. It's the truth. Whatever. I'm not the, you know, it's the real shit, man. It's, you know, I love how people are like, well, I'm cool with like hitting a jugular, but they're like, ew, pussy stuff. Like, it's like, come on, grow the fuck up. There you go. You used to hit your I've jugular, had boy, right? I've had boyfriends that have like yeast infections on their dick, and I'd be like looking at it with like a fucking like loop and be like, okay, that doesn't look good. I'm going to like get some cream and I'll Google. Like I'm not grossed out by body stuff. You, yeah. You got to, I mean, like, listen, and you used to hit your, your jugular as well, right? Yeah. So. I hit something in my neck. Yeah. I mean, I hurt, you know, I didn't hit an artery, thank God, because I'm still here, but I didn't fucking know like anatomy. I didn't like look up vein anatomy and artery anatomy. But I don't think that's a coincidence that you could handle your boyfriend's yeasty dick and you would go for your neck veins. I think you're, you can handle that stuff, you know? Yeah. I took care of a quadriplegic guy and fucking helped him poo and stuff and bathed him. Like, I'm not, 
grossed out by body stuff. And like my good friends, I'm like, I don't know. There's something weird on my ass. Will you look at it? And they're like, okay. Like those are my, that's your best friend. As porn star Brittany Andrews says, Miss Brittany Andrews, life gets lifey, man. You got to get with it. You can't be like, oh, cool. I'm putting shit in my fucking, fucking, you know, I'm registering blood. Yay. And shooting up in my dick vein and be like weird about pussies or dicks or whatever. Yeah. Shooting up Bro, in your dick vein is like, that's something I never, that was, thank God that was a never and not a yet. Like I, I wouldn't do my neck either though. My feet was too much for me. Like, I couldn't even get in my feet. I couldn't even, and I'm vascular as fuck. I could never get in my feet. I was like veinless, but my feet were very veiny. So I always assumed that I could just hit my feet. And when it worked, it was great because my foot veins were so big. But when it didn't work, it would like create a bubble of fucking heroin and water in my foot. And it was really painful. Those bubbles were the worst. Oof. I mean, I think shooting heroin is different than shooting coke, too. I found that when I would miss with coke, it hurt, it burned more. But I oh, did. that's interesting. Who knows? That could just be. But my- I never created. I never got an abscess. I did. My, I have. I have. I got abscesses in my hands, and I still have Ooh. scars. I have so many scars. Do you still have scars from shooting? Nope. You have no scars from shooting anywhere. No, because it's shooting coke. Yeah, I have scars everywhere. Are you ready for the third new dopey segment in one episode? That's <laughs> oh a record. We've never Jesus done Christ. three oh new. I don't think we've ever done the third. I don't even know what this is. No, the Ask Amy segment. You want me to read it? Yeah, read it. Hi, Dave. How's it going? I've been listening to your show for about a year now and was hoping you could give me some solid advice. Sorry. My fiance is a recovering heroin addict. We've been together for almost seven years, long time, and he was about three years clean when I met him. In the past couple of years, I feel like things have started to go downhill for him. Last year, he was arrested for a DUI. Several months later, he relapsed on heroin. He only used once, he told me. That's bullshit. Um, I think. I was the only... I was the one who found the box of needles in his car. Oh. I know, right? That just like fucking, ugh. It wasn't like he told me up front. We went to counseling, and after some time, I trusted him again. He said he didn't want to use again, that he wanted to be sober. I believed him. The past few weeks, I started feeling suspicious. He had some bruises on his arms. He asked to borrow money. I noticed he wasn't always taking his Suboxone. Uh Uh-oh. So I confronted him, and he told me I was being paranoid and everything was fine. Then last week, I found his stash while cleaning. An eyeglass case with needles, cooker, armband. I was furious and kicked him out. Turns out he was even stealing money from his mom, who he works with, so she had suspicions too. He admitted he's been using a couple of times a week for the past couple of months. I'm so hurt and angry from being lied to, and I feel so stupid for believing him in the first place. Since then, he's gone to his medical center to get back into treatment. What with COVID, they're not offering any rehab inpatient services, so he'll be going in twice a week for UAs and counseling. He says that he wants to get better. He feels so much guilt for relapsing, and he didn't know how to tell me out of fear I would leave him. I don't know what to do. Do I walk away from the relationship? Do I stay? He tells me that he loves me, and nothing is more important to him than us. I think it's a good sign that he's admitting his problem and getting help, but I worry that this is going to be our whole life. 
a series of lies and relapses. I also worry that one day I'm going to come home and he's going to be dead on the floor. Mm. If I listen to my gut, I know that I love him more than anything and want to stay. But I wonder if I'm making, if I wonder if staying makes me pathetic and weak. How do you love an addict? I've been to a couple of Al-Anon meetings and didn't feel like they were very helpful. Maybe I just need to find the right group of people. But I thought I'd reach out to you and hope you might have some insight. Thanks, Dave. Hope you're doing all right, Leslie. Well, I thank you, Leslie. I appreciate the email. Um, It's brutal. And before we ask Amy, I'm going to give my insight because... uh, Of Chris. Well, and just for myself... um, I don't like to give people advice, um, but I think if you love him as much as you say you love him, I think you need to go and let him get his shit together and um, and see how he does and go back uh, when you feel like you can trust him if that ever happens. Because right now, it seems incredibly dangerous and you're not doing any favors for him. You're living a terrible life and he's living a terrible life. It is the, the ballad of codependency as they say. Um, But Leslie, like you got to look out for yourself. You look out for yourself and he looks out for himself and maybe you guys can reunite. That would be the miracle. But I would definitely uh, let him do his thing. What do you think, Amy? Ooh. Wow. Well, now I just feel like my thing was kind of soft and pussy-ish and so now I've got to regroup. What were you going to say? Well, I've never been in that position. Well, I mean, I've always, like, been, Chris, yeah. I've always been that guy. I've always been the guy. I've never been Leslie. You know I, what I mean? Um, I, well, let me say one more thing. I was the guy. I am the guy. I had one woman who was, you know, a great girlfriend, a great friend. She kept me going. She stayed with me. She believed the bullshit. She was patient, and I never got clean. Um, I, and I kept fucking up over and over and over again. Then my current partner was like, fuck that, and she left, and I got my shit together. Um, and, and, and with Chris, Annie actually found him dead on the floor. So like that happens, you know, Oh God. or or my friend Todd, his parents found him dead on the floor, you know, and I don't mean to step on the ask Amy advice. It's just, this is very visceral to me. No, I mean, I'm not really good at this because I think tough love sometimes works and sometimes it kills people. Um, I think that, I think you're right. He does have to have the consequences. I think she should move out break up with him and get him and you know he needs to get clean i also i know a lot of people um who are taking inpatient who are inpatient because even despite covid in fact we're doing these scholarships these dopey scholarships toodles for chris scholarships so if well there you go if he wants a scholarship there you go write me an email if he's not willing to do that then he doesn't really fucking want it like you got it like he's got to go inpatient i'm sorry and it's like as much as he might love her and I don't doubt it. You can never, ever get sober for someone else. I could never get sober for someone else. I lost everything and I could not get sober. As much as I fucking love people, I could not get clean for them. I had to fucking get clean for me. But when the fucking consequences really like fucking came on me, hardcore, man, I got my shit together. Me too. So it's like, me too. But I think it's important to let the person know you love them and you're not in like, you're, they're not a bad person. But you have to protect yourself and you don't think, you know what I mean? And it's like, my dad didn't find Al-Anon helpful either. But I will say this. He went to one meeting 
and I don't know if people know this story because it's, and, and you know, he went to one meeting and he was like, this is fucking repetitive. I think maybe two. And he was like, it's so fucking repetitive. I'm not into it. But I called him one time for money. And um, I was threatening to kill myself or use or whatever if he didn't give it to me or something. And he just said, you used to be able to ruin my life and now you can't ruin my lunch. That's awesome. And I was like, holy shit. And the gig was up. Right. Because, you, yeah, and you couldn't do it anymore. I, yeah, well, I just I was like, I can't manipulate. Once I, I couldn't manipulate people anymore, and once everyone was over my bullshit and was like, I'm done. I'm done with you at the bottom of the well. I'm done fucking, like, you know, I, I got it together, like you said. So I think that she needs to... You know, it could definitely be her life, lies and relapse. I mean, I don't believe that he just used a couple times, so three times a week. That's fucking bullshit. No, it, it's very unlikely. I think one of the biggest questions for Leslie is like, what is her life like? Is it is it a satisfying relationship? Is it fun? Is your life good? Is it a good time? And And you're just finding you know, paraphernalia and seeing bruises and, and being suspicious. Oh. And, and if it's like that, if you're having a good time and, and you're having a fulfilling relationship, um, then it shouldn't be hard to talk him into uh, treatment. And if you're not, then he needs consequences. Um, Agreed. And, and you need like, you need freedom too. You know what I mean? It's all, it's well, all. Yeah. Thing. You don't also, once, you know, you need trust, you need trust, you need, to be able to, he needs to be able to come to you and go, I fucked up and I need help. Like from the beginning and not hide it and think, oh, she's going to leave me. It's like, well, if she leaves you, it's the fucking, you know, it's the consequences of your actions, bud. Like I just finally cut someone off where someone, a friend of mine, uh, who I had been, who's been relapsing and relapsing and relapsing and relapsing and everyone else kind of cut him out of their life. And he was a meth head and then he shot dope and, and basically overdosed and died and was brought back to life over the weekend and left it to me, left it for me on a message, on a voicemail, like totally nonchalant. Right. So I'm still alive. Like, call me back if you want. I'm like, are you not getting the gravity of the situation? Right. And then he called me. I didn't return that call. And it's really hard for me not to. And then he called me from the psych ward. And um, I didn't return that call. And he hasn't called me. And it's like, I can't watch it. I can't watch it. And I feel like I'm enabling. And I also feel like do something different. Like if whatever you're doing is not working, right? Do something different. And yeah, and it's like you've never been to rehab. Go to fucking rehab. Like not that rehab always works. I've been to seven fucking rehabs, right. but it's like, you know, it's a move. Um, it's a move in the right direction, is what it is. She also, you know, she's been with him for so long, and it's like sometimes we feel like we've invested so much and we don't want to leave what we've invested, but that time is already gone. It's called the sunk cost fallacy, and it's like. You know, you have to really look at it in terms of how is it going to pay off in the future? Right, right. But the the Not, other thing, the other you know. thing that I think is just really important, and we can we can talk about it. But it's like I, I was I, I listened to old episodes of, of Dopey once in a while, or, or segments of me and Chris, and I listened to this segment, and it was me and Chris like laughing our asses off about something, uh. and um, and then you know one day he overdosed and he's gone forever. And that, and that memory is there, but he's gone. And that day that he died, and Annie, Annie actually, his girlfriend, just got engaged. 
um, to some, you know, obviously to somebody else and she's moving on, but she will carry finding Chris's body for the rest of her life. And Leslie, I, I think we should like avoid that. You do not want that moment. That moment will, will, You'll, well, yeah, you'll 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 live with that forever. It'll star you forever. You will never fucking get rid of that. Exactly. And it's like you know, he might be the love of your life, but also like you have to fucking look out and protect yourself. So it's like you can love him, but you have to have boundaries, and he needs to fucking get clean. Right. That's it for like a chunk of time. He needs to get clean if she's going to be with him, because obviously we know well, yeah. that not everybody needs to get clean. You and know? it's like she might need someone else, and whatever, like. You know, maybe this is the universe. Like, I mean, love doesn't fix it. That's the fucking horrible part about addiction. It just doesn't. Right, right. Um, but he can get better, and you need to fucking protect yourself. And that's our second Ask Amy question. Brutal email from Leslie. Oh, brutal. I mean, just the box of fucking, oh, and the eyeglass case. Can you imagine her how she felt? Yeah, it's terrible. It's fucking, you know, and also he's like denying it. And it's like, I mean, that's classic. I mean, you know, using addicts or like liars. I mean, but it's just like, I, I just, she's got to look out for herself. She cannot save him. She cannot save him. I also, he has to save himself. And you're right. He needs to have consequences. You're right. All right. I mean, I, I mean, listen, you never know what's going to happen. That's just our opinion. And I really appreciate Leslie like confiding this thing in us and in Dopey, and it means a lot to me. Uh, anybody else, um, you know, advice I don't think we're particularly good about, but Dopey stories well, we we're love not to experts. Get. We're not experts except on, like, self-destruction yeah. and, 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 like, sea monkeys in your pussy. Yeah, dumb you know? shit. I'm, I'm a good, yeah, and things we hate and stuff. Like, um, yeah, feet, yeah, shooting up in our feet, whatever. Yeah, yeah I, I, exactly. But if you have a good fucking Dopey story, you send it into dopeypodcast at gmail.com. Amy, it was a joy to have you back on the show. Oh my God, so fucking so stoked to fucking reclaim my Dopey Dress title, and and uh, this was a lot of fun and connect with you again. Always, so thank you for having me. It is a pleasure. Thank you for coming, and we say uh, stay strong, Dopey Nation, and fucking and toodles. toodles for Chris. Fucking yeah. toodles for Chris, Amy. Thank you. Thank you. I won't take a walk around.